Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've got a couple hours of going against the grain for you. I was just momentarily distracted by an update in the case of Paul Pelosi, which I'll tell you about in just a second. We are, of course, going to talk about the assault. The break-in and assault on the husband of the U.S. Speaker of the House. Yes. And what Crazy. the heck. Yeah, how to understand that, who is investigating it, uh, what it, you know, we don't have any idea why that happened no. uh, for now. So we're going to talk about that in just a sec. We're going to talk about some economic news. Uh, good news for Exxon I'll and say. Chevron. Uh, bad news for most of the rest of us. We are going to talk about Elon Musk taking over Twitter for realsies. We've got Brazil's election this weekend coming up, the runoff there between Lula and Bolsonaro. We've got Somalia requesting more U.S. drone strikes. Can you imagine? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can now because I saw it, but I and, wouldn't And have. the White House is like, well, we're not sure we want to do more drone strikes, but we'll consider it. Like, come on. Try something else. <laughs> We've got protests in Europe. We've got protests in Palestine. We've got an election coming up in Israel next yes. week. We've got Chuck Schumer caught on a hot mic, dampening Democratic expectations for the midterms. We've got uh, a lot to get into. Um, but yeah, this Paul Pelosi story. So Paul Pelosi, somebody apparently, this is according to reports we have now, broke in to uh, he and Nancy's home in San Francisco in the early hours of the morning and violently assaulted Mr. Pelosi. With a hammer. Yeah, the hammer thing I have seen reportedly. I haven't necessarily seen it confirmed. Also, he's what, 82 years old? 82 years old. And the current reporting on his condition is that he's expected to make a full recovery. So those two things, I don't know. I I, want to wait to see. Yeah, they have the guy. They have the suspect. Uh, in custody, they are uh, trying to, I guess, or probably, probably know what, now why he did it. So yeah. now we're waiting to be told what his motivations supposedly were. They've said that the that the guy who broke in specifically targeted the Pelosi home. Although I, I'm this sure is, you've been to San Francisco. You know, this this area of Pacific Heights, these, these houses are fortresses. Yeah. And they have high brick walls over them. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi being the Speaker of the House, you would think that there would be some sort of security at their home. Mm -hmm. Even if there's not physical security, you'd think there would be an alarm system on the home or something to warn the guy that somebody is breaking in. Yeah. So this is all coming from AP, uh, as of just a couple minutes ago, or half an hour ago, has these details, uh, attributing them to people familiar with the investigation. So we'll see, you know, what is confirmed. But yeah, they're saying he targeted, they targeted the Pelosi's. Um. And yeah, I guess he doesn't have bruises, swelling and other injuries. Right. So, I mean, you know, breaking you know, into somebody's house and attacking an 82 year old man. is Yeah. A, not is cool. a, yeah no, it's not is cool. dastardly. I, and, I would and we say. should be careful, too. You know, I went on to rawstory.com just to see what their take is. And of course, this is a left wing um, news source. Mm-hmm. And they're already blaming January 6th people for targeting the Pelosi's like people. Yeah. Let's not jump to conclusions yet. This could be a crackhead or some homeless guy or yeah. maybe Paul Pelosi left the window open. Who knows? Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. So we, we can't jump to conclusions. You do have uh, the Capitol Police and the FBI involved in the investigation along That's with right. San Francisco police. So, I mean, I expect we'll get more details uh, over the course of the day. It is interesting to me. I mean, when I heard of this, I thought, well, somebody broke into 
Somebody attempted to burglarize the house of an obviously wealthy person in yeah. San Francisco is yes. what I, I didn't yes. think immediately politically motivated, but who knows? Maybe that is that what, was we my will, thought too. what we will learn. Um, I also, I know we are going to talk more about Elon Musk uh, later in the show. Yeah. But some of these reactions online have been pretty funny. So Elon Musk, he's bought Twitter outright. He's taking it private. Yes. So the board is going to be dissolved. It's going to be delisted yes. from the New York Stock Exchange. And also uh, yesterday, Musk fired a bunch of Twitter executives, including the CEO, the CFO, the legal and policy chief, and the mm -hmm. general counsel. Mm -hmm. And just, some people are treating this as like, a bunch of people making minimum wage have lost their job. Right. I'm going to say yeah, uh, that's former not the Vermont case. Governor Howard Dean, high Twitterverse, Elon Musk fired folks at Twitter, so I'm firing Elon. Again, this is the C. Yeah, that doesn't even make any sense. Oh, I'm pretty sure the landing pads those people have Oh, yeah. His parachute sufficient. is quite golden. Yes. 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 I also want to say absolutely the worst I just the worst take I have seen on this so far uh, comes from a lawyer, says he's the founder of MainStreetLaw.com. He's a commentator on MSNBC and CNN and has something like, you know, uh, 300,000 followers or whatever. So I'm not putting just some like little dude on blast. Right. Uh, Tristan Snell. <laughs> Here's what did he, his say? Take. he said, uh, again, this is about a billionaire buying Twitter, a company that's already owned by a bunch of terrible people with a lot of money just in a public way. He says, stay, hold your ground like a Ukrainian. <sighs> I think that is, that is actually offensive. Yeah, that's offensive. You're going, oh, yes. Maintain, maintain your account on a social media platform with the bravery of, you know, as he is imagining, you know, somebody, somebody uh, defending their homeland against an invader. What is wrong in your brain? Unbelievable. That you think those that, things that's are worth responding to. Just, just to say, grow up. Yeah, like, who do you think you are? I almost swore. Unbelievable. Because <laughs> I just find that so mind-boggling. Incredible. Like, honestly, how important do you think you are? Seriously. That your, uh, your Twitter account is a war zone. God, these nerds. Anyway, and again, as I say, I doubt my experience on Twitter is going to change very much. But I also will say I am not necessarily a member of a a vulnerable or targeted population who's, you know, I'm not particularly active. I'm not exposed to lots of vitriol on Twitter. So I, I don't want to say that I know what it's going to be like for, for people who might end up targets in a sort of free-for-all, if that's what it does become. But still, I do think, I do think this is a molehill being built into a mountain. Mm -hmm. We'll see. And, uh, you know, and also, of course, worth pointing out, uh, cool, our, our, our sort of uh, digital town squares you just have to pick the billionaire. Mm -hmm. Pick the billionaire mm -hmm. whose politics most align with yours, and and go with them. Yeah, and go with you know, it. Not right. it's not a, not a truly, uh, you know, there's nothing truly egalitarian about this. That's there's no right. actual defense of free speech here. It's just what speech different billionaires like. Yeah, I saw I saw a comment about this today that I thought was so right on. It's we've we've entered this this period of the super rich, where instead of rich people buying yachts or giant houses. They buy social media platforms where they can just sort of perpetuate their own view of the world, right? Donald yeah. Trump has has part of uh, Truth Social. Kanye West is reportedly now buying Parler. This is just the phase that we find ourselves in. Yeah, yeah. But it is true. I mean, on the one hand, you can overstate the value of social media, but 
Sure. Uh, you know, it, it is a sort of imp- it is a, an important communication tool, and also it's a, it, importance as a mm-hmm. uh, as a data mm-hmm. Hoover and collector. I think Correct. is something that goes un- unremarked upon. So every time yep. I'm about to say whatever, social media, none of it matters. I mean, it does matter. Uh, you know, it does matter in terms of being able it, to direct advertising does. toward us and exploit us. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it, again, I guess it's complicated, John, is what I want to say. I suppose. Um, good news for Exxon and Chevron. <laughs> Not just Shell. I, I kick myself for selling my Exxon shares 20 years ago. Uh, the two largest oil companies today reported a fourth quarter of robust profits. Exxon's earnings increased by 181% for a profit of $19.7 billion. This uh, is nearly triple what it made in the same period last year. And according to Bloomberg, the highest profit ever in its 152-year history. What a coincidence yes. that, that oil prices um, have surged like that and the company is, is bringing in record profits. Chevron which brought in $11.2 billion. That, ha- that was its second best quarterly result ever. Uh, Exxon said its production in Texas and New Mexico was its highest ever, as was the volume of North American refining. And here is a quote that I felt worth pointing out. Um, the chief executive of Exxon said, the investments we've made, even through the pandemic, enabled us to increase production to address the needs of consumers. Good to know that yeah. huge oil companies uh, which have both, by the way, stressed that they are also profiting because they are cutting costs right. and focusing on efficiency. But it's good to know that they never for a second felt like it might be time to slow down investment in fossil fuel extraction. Right. right? I think that tells us something. No, no, we're continuing to invest. We know yes. we know what the future is going to be and we know no one's coming for us. Yes, indeed. we're just still we're making money until the planet burns down mm-hmm. around us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, A a little note from Bloomberg on this that I also thought was worth repeating. Uh, The sheer size of the combined profits, equivalent to roughly $14 million an hour, is sure to amplify criticism from U.S. President Joe Biden and other Democrats about profiteering, et cetera, et cetera. Biden has singled out Exxon and Shell, uh, and the latest profit reports come little more than a week before Americans head to the polls. I mean, sure. I'm sure President Biden is going to amplify his criticism. What is that going to do for any of us? Nothing. We've already seen him. We've already seen him say or else on Twitter Mm -hmm. and wag his finger. Right. So what else are you going to do? What are you going to do? This is saying, what do you got? Yeah. Because we got $14 million an An hour. hour. What are you bringing, Joe Biden, to redistribute any of this? Uh, Yeah. Amazon, meantime, we're going to have a conversation about tech stocks because Amazon fell 20%. You know, I don't fully understand that. You and I were talking about that earlier yep. today, and you said most likely correctly that it's just because things are really volatile right now. But then today we've got the Dow Jones up 600 points so far. Yeah. I just don't understand what tech volatility is all about. Well, we're, maybe we can get a guest who can tell us what all of this stuff is about. So just, you know, hold on to your seats, gang, or to come back with just that information. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, we have Hillary Clinton. Hillary yeah, Clinton uh, coming out and uh, recording a statement in support for a referendum in Maine that would raise the minimum wage to $18 an hour and would also, yes. I think, raise the minimum wage for, for tipped workers. Uh, yeah, so the, she came out. This was this is a, uh, a ballot initiative that I think is being um, pushed by the Democratic Socialists of America, this referendum. Interesting. Yeah. 
So, I mean, good. I support that as well. I do, too. It is sort of interesting. The um, account that has tweeted this video that she apparently did it for, it's got, it's got um, 43 likes. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? retweets. Yeah. I mean, this is an account. This is a small account. Okay. Um, uh, For One Fair Wage Portland. It doesn't have very many followers. So, it's just, uh, it's pretty funny. I don't think, I think Hillary Clinton also, um, a year or so ago, uh, endorsed a candidate for the for LA City Council, and the same just went absolutely nowhere. Well, you know, she got did no that, attention whatsoever. She did that in in Arlington, Virginia. There's a a guy named Adam Parkamenko. Oh yeah, oh, God, you know Adam that guy. Yes, yeah. He he was like an intern at the White House. Yeah, and worked on the Clinton campaign. And she's endorsed him for a whole bunch of different things. He ran for. For county council, and he lost. He ran for the state legislature, and he lost. He ran for the state senate, and he lost. He's one of those like professional troublemakers on Twitter. Yeah, and I don't understand why Hillary Clinton keeps endorsing this guy for stuff. I mean, loyalty. I suppose that is the sort of analysis that I've heard. You say what you will about the Clintons, but they are at least loyal. loyal. Or else Obama. Mm-hmm. Obama was the stabby in the back administration. Oh yes. Yeah. So good. I mean, great. Glad to see glad to see someone uh, who, uh, you know, again, you would think would have a powerful voice. Yes. Still uh, endorsing something that I think will be good for the common people of of Portland. Uh, There's more to get into, but I think we can bring on our next guest and we'll save some more uh, inflammatory stories about Elon Musk. uh, Some news about the Northern Ireland. Potentially yeah. very interesting things happening See, in Northern Ireland. You taught me something today. I didn't know this. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you more de- in more detail about it a little later. Let's take a break here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Elon Musk yesterday, as we just told you, took control of Twitter and almost immediately fired the company's CEO, CFO, general counsel, and director of legal policy, trust, and safety. According to the Washington Post, the four were unceremoniously escorted out of the building by security officers. Not very nice. (laughs) Musk has criticized Twitter's leadership for content moderation and for suspending former President Donald Trump. He said yesterday that he will put his personal stamp on Twitter quickly. We're not really sure what that means, but we'll watch. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, not realizing that he was on a hot mic, was heard telling President Biden yesterday that he believes Herschel Walker will defeat Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Schumer was also heard to say that in Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman should still beat Dr. Mehmet Oz. But a poll released this morning shows Oz now beating Fetterman 45 to 48, sorry, to 45, which is just outside the margin of error. A new provisional government in Somalia has formally asked the United States to step up its drone attacks against the Al-Shabaab terrorist group. That's good for the provisional government. But isn't it also exactly what the U.S. has been seeking in Africa? More of a foothold? And consumer spending increased by a seasonally adjusted 0.6% for September, 
the Commerce Department announced yesterday, while overall consumer prices rose 6.2% year-over-year, that's the same number as it was in August. We're joined by John Jeter. He's an author, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, former Washington Post bureau chief, and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. John, it is always great having you. Welcome back. Thank you for having me, John. Uh, we, we really love it. Uh, John, let's start with Elon Musk and Twitter. Musk finalized this deal to buy Twitter yesterday for $44.1 billion, almost all of it in Tesla stock. Within hours, he had the company's four top officials escorted out of the building. It was an ignominious end for them all. I couldn't help but chuckle. <laughs> Musk then said that he would quickly put his stamp on the company. What do you think that means? What changes do you think we should expect to see? And is Donald Trump coming back to Twitter? The rumor is he'll be back on Monday. Uh, I, I would be shocked if he doesn't come back to Twitter. I think that's what this is all about is in keeping with brand, uh, with Musk's brand, his peculiar brand, uh, as this sort of uh, almost very much like John McCain without the military background, but this maverick. Uh, kind of uh, uh, neoliberal type. And so, yeah, I would be shocked if Donald Trump doesn't come back to Twitter. And I would also be shocked if I, the numbers I've heard are that Musk plans to lay off 75% of the staff. I have no idea yes. what it will be, but I would be shocked if we don't see some really dramatic layoffs at Twitter, uh, which begs the question, why isn't Twitter and all of social media regulated uh, as a public utility? Why isn't it Yes, owned by exactly. the public and why isn't it regulated as a public utility? It seems that these are issues that should not be left to private uh, private concerns. And while I am certainly no fan of Donald Trump, um, I, I don't I can't I can't see any reason why he should be banned from the discussion via Twitter. I don't see that, uh, particularly as someone who is likely to be the next president of the United States. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am fairly <laughs> sure. Um, and so, yeah, this is uh, and in context with the elections, the midterm elections that are coming up. I mean, we've got a demagogue waiting in the wings. We've got this platform which is going to open up to him. It's you know, I was chastised just yesterday by a friend of mine who has a radio show for saying the same things over and over again. But I, I, <laughs> I can't help myself. I just see this perfect storm on the horizon. I'm kind of trying to, in my best chicken little way, to say duck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. To tell you the truth, I'm not even sure how Twitter makes a profit. Um, and it has so much competition now from Truth Social, Gab, Telegram, Parler, and others. You think? Well, Telegram, sure. I don't know how much competition is presented by Gab, Parler, or Truth Social. Well, but they're out there. You know, sure. it used to be that it was just, you know, Facebook and Twitter, but Twitter was for serious people and it was for news and and Facebook was for connecting with your family and your friends from high school. And it's more spread out now. Is this thing going to be a thing now, John, where billionaires, instead of buying yachts and and private islands and giant houses, are going to start buying companies that allow them to push their own political and social agendas? I mean, Kanye West said just two weeks ago he was going to buy Parler. And Donald Trump is, is an owner of uh, Truth Social. Yeah, I, I, I don't know uh, is, I guess, the short answer, but I suspect that, um, I mean, you, you talked about Twitter not turning a profit. I'm not sure they have. Um, I know that Uber just only recently, I think during the pandemic, turned their right. first profit. And so what we have really is an economy that's built on this money printing, right? I think that money yeah. printing is coming to an end. 
um, has, has come to an end as the Federal Reserve tries to kill inflation by killing wages, which is not what caused the inflation. What caused the inflation was money printing. So this is my suspicion. You know, I don't know. I'm not a trained economist, uh, but I know just enough to be dangerous. Uh, I think that this money printing is going to come to an end. The billionaires are going to remain billionaires, but I think their wealth is going to be dramatically affected by the fact that the people in the United States, the population doesn't have buying power. I just recently returned to Washington, D.C. I have to tell you, I am shocked at the food prices. And that, by the way, is nothing. Oh, yeah. but, that's just price gouging. It's not. There, there's not yeah, any yeah. sort of, uh, uh, this is not some just sort of natural result, result of uh, uh, of, of, of uh, this invisible hand. This this yes. is this is capital trying to make money however they can. We don't make anything of value, so they see an opportunity uh, after the pandemic, after uh, you know the, the 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 grants that we re- we received from the Biden and Trump administration, they see an opportunity to raise prices and make money. It's just going to break the economy, and so I I really see uh, big trouble uh, again, repeating myself on the horizon economically, and I suspect that while of course the rich will remain rich, that they may have a little bit less disposable income for buying. Uh, these social media concerns and other sort of trinkets and 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 baubles. Yeah, yeah, right. I have uh, I have two friends who recently moved to the area from Austin, Texas, and they say exactly what you just said. They are absolutely dumbfounded by the prices of food that we have here. And granted, you know, our land prices are higher, so it's more expensive for for you know Giant and Safeway and Whole Foods and such to to build their their places, but. You know, what do you do if you're if you're a lower income family? I, How do you afford food? Yeah, I, it's terrible. I, I don't know. I, I brought a Subway sandwich for a woman in the Subway two days ago, uh, mm-hmm. mostly just because she looked terrible. And I, you just think, well, it, you know, she's not the only person in Washington D.C. who's uh, you know experiencing yeah, this kind of uh, deficit. Amen to that. Chuck Schumer was caught on a hot mic yesterday talking to President Biden about the Senate races in Georgia and Pennsylvania. He was down on Georgia and up on Pennsylvania, but I'm not sure that the polls bear that out today. You know, I'm addicted to polls. It's like the first thing I even before I get out of bed in the morning, I reach over, I get my phone and I look at the polls. John making a cry for help right. on the radio. I, I, I need to find it. I, yeah. I, listen, I'm single and I'm looking, so we'll leave it at that. One thing, give John something else to look at in the morning, right. ladies. You've heard right. the, you've you've got your call to action here. One thing Schumer added was that early ver- voter turnout was quote huge, just huge. That is true. Um, something like 1.6 million people have already voted in um, in Georgia. So, give us your thoughts about Schumer's comments and and about this enormous voter turnout in Georgia. What what does it mean? What should we take from it? I've gone back and forth on these elections. I initially thought we were going to see a huge red wave, and then the, the, mm-hmm. the Republicans nominated people like Herschel Walker in Georgia and Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, and I thought the quality of their candidates might hurt them and that the Democrats would lose the House, but, uh, well, yeah, would lose the House, but might uh, retain the Senate. I, I'm starting to believe that it's going to be a red wave. It's going to be a red tsunami. Uh, I, I'm guessing that Fetterman, um, and and I, you know, I'm not sure that this is necessarily fair, but I, I don't, I don't see a huge turnout for him, particularly in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh from Black voters 
who could turn that election for the, for for the blue team. Uh, I and I think in Georgia, I'm starting to think we're going to have a Senator Herschel Walker, as Schumer uh, said. And I think the reason for that is because the same blacks who are not going to come out and vote for uh, Stacey Abrams are not going to come out and vote for Raphael Warnock. Uh, this is entirely the Democrats' fault, right? Uh, you know, it might have been a great photo op for the suburban white voters uh, in Iowa and 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 Michigan when uh, uh, Joe Biden held that Klan rally at the State of the Union speech with his fund the police message. But, you know, these things have consequences. And I think the Democrats are about to suffer them. So I think we're going to see a red wave. I think Hunter Biden better learn not to drop the soap. Um, and I think that um, we're in for a really, a really tough uh, uh, year uh, heading into uh, 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 2023. Many of our listeners are probably not old enough to remember the 1978 midterm election. It was the first election in my life that I paid attention to. And... Um, it feels like 1978 again, where all these races are really, really close. And then one by one by one, they all break Republican. Um, I remember something that the DNC put out at the time that was entitled, Poof, There Goes the Senate. And it was about how like five Senate seats were lost by the Democrats by a combined total of under 10,000 votes, wow. which is incredible. And I think that we may be looking at the same kind of situation. I think John is right that this is about voter turnout. And especially African-American voters are not excited by John Fetterman in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. I think they're not terribly excited about Stacey Abrams, who my own personal opinion is that she has been she has been overvalued as a as a a political candidate for the last four years. I, I'm not really sure exactly what it is that she brings to the table that makes her any more special than anybody else. But I think John's right. This is all about turnout and it's not looking good right now. And I think that I think John, that the turnout in Georgia is um, the heavy turnout so far. I suspect that that is actually Republicans who are excited uh, about, you know, beating her yeah. uh, Raphael Warnock. Uh, you know, yeah. Herschel Walker is not. I guess this is the 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 Republicans' version of blue, no matter who. You know, red, red, right. no matter what. <laughs> you know, so that's right. Um, I, I don't. You know, I don't know, obviously, but I suspect that a lot of Democrats are going to be uh, crying in their suit come next Wednesday. I think so. There has been a years-long debate, John, over the U.S. military presence in Africa. We only learned accidentally a few years ago that there is a special forces presence in places like Chad and Niger. Now the new government in Somalia, well, government in quotation marks, it only really controls Mogadishu, is asking the U.S. for more drone strikes. We don't hear those words very often. <laughs> the White House says that it'll consider the request, but this seems like a slippery slope to me. Um, what do you think about this request? Is this a viable policy? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, it's insane. And it it would be a horrible move for the Biden administration, particularly at this point. You know, one of the best kept secrets in Washington is the militarization of Africa that began after uh, 9-11. Um, oh, yes. Uh, despite the fact that, of course, there's always been this sort of colonial presence by the West and including by the United States in Africa. 
there was really no military. There weren't any military bases. I think there was one up until 2001 or 2002 mm-hmm. when George Bush started to expand. And then AFRICOM came, I think, in 2007. And, and, and this is the thing that I think people really don't understand. Obama dramatically expanded the military footprint, the United States military footprint in Africa. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was an exponential increase uh, of these military bases, this militarization of Africa, even though I think AFRICOM was based in Germany. Um, but but the, the military bases there, which resulted in what we're seeing now in these dis- this destabilization, this deepening destabilization, Think about it. If you think about when you first heard about this, is it Hoko Baram? Uh, I can't remember the name of the group. Yeah, and, Boko, Boko, Boko Haram. Yeah, in, right. in, in Nigeria, you didn't hear about that till till uh, what? Maybe 2011, I think, when we first started hearing about them. Yeah, that's right. They did Mozambique, a country that I'm very familiar with, have visited many times, uh, has had nothing but peace since the end of their civil war in the early 90s. And now they're seeing terrorism in the Northwest province that is uh, uh, really troubling. And so, and, and by the way, Donald Trump, while he didn't completely dismantle AFRICOM, he did pull back a little bit from the military presence. And I believe Joe Biden, don't quote me on this, but I believe Joe Biden has gone back uh, and sort of restored the presence in Africa. So this is very troubling. Uh, It will not earn anything for the Biden administration in terms of uh, of voting. Uh, It will hurt him, I think, at the polls in 2024. It will hurt, um, I I would imagine he will wait till after the, the midterms to do anything. But uh, it will hurt uh, Democrats going forward. So it's a terrible idea. Uh, and, and by the way, it's a terrible idea among Africans, right? I'm sure that uh, totally uh, agree. Africans are universally, the consensus is that they don't want any parts of the United States military in Africa or any more than they already that's are. Right. And that's exactly why AFRICOM is based in uh, in Germany. Right. Exactly. Because not a single country on the entire African continent once a permanent U.S. base. And who can blame them? John, um, we saw a, a raft of numbers from the Commerce Department this week. The economy is barely growing, if at all, and inflation is still a problem. What do you take from these consumer spending numbers, especially in light of inflation? What conclusions should we draw from what we saw today? I, 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 have, I have looked for this term uh, uh, about how when people obsess about a certain number the more corrupt the number becomes. And you can see that with <laughs> unemployment. I cannot remember the term, and I can't find it. I've searched for it, actually. But the number becomes corrupt when you obsess over it, when you fixate on it. So that you can see that with mm-hmm. our unemployment numbers, which don't actually re- reflect our true unemployment uh, figures. But uh, right. uh, I, 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 I'm deeply suspicious of these numbers, uh, particularly you know, given the timing right before the, the midterm elections. I'm, I'm suspicious of... Uh, uh, GDP growth. Uh, I, I, I just, I'm not sure. I believe it. I don't understand where the growth would come from. I suppose we're, right. we're selling more gas to Europe, but I can't imagine that we're selling that much that we would actually see uh, an almost three percent jump in GDP. Yeah. Um, and Agreed. and the inflation. I think you know, again, looking at the food prices uh, and the housing prices, I, I just think it's underestimated. Uh, I think it's quite a bit more than the. Six percent that they are, are are saying, although that although six percent is really troubling when you think about it, it's month to month um, uh, or year over year. Uh, but I, I I think what we're seeing again, and I, I apologize, John and Michelle, for continually repeating <laughs> myself. I I just think I you know to me the question 
it doesn't matter if, if it did grow. If I'm wrong and it did actually go by 3%, uh, we're in a recession, right? And, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not using the, 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 the typical official definition. I'm talking about what it feels like and how people will experience it. We're in a recession. This economy is shrinking. It's kept afloat uh, or is kept alive with smoke and mirrors at this point. We're in very real trouble. We have this very real economic distress. Our partners uh, in Europe are experiencing the same thing or if not worse, actually, especially in Germany. And so I, I just think the only question for me, if I'm honest, and I know this is, um, I don't mean to be alarmist. It's just a question at this point. I don't know what's going to happen. But the only question yeah. for me is whether or not we're going to see another depression. Um, and I just, uh, I fear that we will, frankly. That's actually a conversation I would like to have in the next week or two especially as we learn more about housing starts and, um, and interest rates. I think you raise an important point. John, uh, there's a terrific article in Politico today about a Wall Street Journal reporter you probably know, Jay Solomon, who was fired from his job as the chief foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in 2017 after the Associated Press published an article about conversations the, that he had with a source in the Middle East. And apparently he was making plans to do business with this source. The journal says that Solomon was sacked for unethical behavior, but it turns out that AP got its information from an illegal hack that was apparently initiated by an American law firm representing a country in the Middle East, which was apparently Kuwait. Wow. It's complicated. Now Solomon is suing, saying that he did nothing wrong. I don't know if you can comment on this case, even if you can't. Can you tell us about your own experiences serving overseas when these kind of events unfold? Well, I, 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 I've heard of Jay Solomon. I've never met him. Um, I, I suspect a couple things. One, I, I, I couldn't quite get the time and the chronology of when he was sacked as opposed to sort of, you know, when they went uh, on this, on uh, uh, digging through his emails. But I suspect right. very, very strongly that he wasn't sacked for these emails, that they went looking for it, looking at these emails as a pretext for some other uh, issue that they had with him. I have no idea what that could be. I, I can say from my own experience, I was not sacked by the Washington Post, but only because we had a union. They, they otherwise, <laughs> I, I would have been, um, but, but not for cause, um, because I think, I suspect that my coverage, uh, especially my coverage of financial issues, both in Africa and later in South America, became uh, a bit too progressive for them. And I mm. suspect also, uh, and I can't prove this, this is just a thought that has occurred to me many times, that uh, my issues seem to uh, increase uh, uh, with my editors when I moved to Argentina in late 2003. No, in, in, in uh, early 2003, and I was covering Argentina's financial crisis as they were beginning to dig out. And there was a question in Argentina about repaying these bonds, these Wall Street bonds, which oh, Wall yeah. Street, Wall I remember. Street had, yeah, they had invested more than they should have. Their own their own guidelines said they should only you know invest one X percentage. And they invested like double that. And so the, right. the conversation in Argentina among Argentines and with the government was, well, you know, a bond is not. Uh, is not something that you owe, whether or not you uh, whether you make money or not. If a bond, you only pay a bond if you actually uh, are able to, right? And so, Argentina, right. it's like going into, going into a casino. It would be like going into a casino, putting your money on red, 
it comes up black yeah. and you say you tell the, the the dealer to pay you and Argentine said no it doesn't right. work that way and that's what that's what Elliott Associates did the big hedge fund exactly they invested in all these Argentine bonds and and they lost their shirts right. and they said no 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 we still want our money back exactly and so I started writing about this from the Argentine's point of view I was in Argentina it seemed only right uh, and and of course Argentina I think ended up just paying do- uh, pennies on the dollar maybe twenty percent on the right. dollar for these right. bonds, which in, in my estimation was more than they should have paid uh, because they had children starving at the time. There, that crisis was very real, yeah. the greatest crisis certainly of oh, the yes. 20th century for the, for Argentina. And I, I suspect, but I don't know this, right, uh, that some investors, particularly some who might have been involved with the Post, like Warren Buffett, I don't know for a fact if it was Warren Buffett, but I suspect that, that there might have been some people sort of raising questions about my reportage in Argentina. So I don't know what hmm. Jay Solomon did, how he sort of ran afoul of the of well, the Wall Street Journal types. You know, it could have been a personal issue. I have no idea. But I suspect that they went fishing for something uh, to yeah. to to uh, to get rid of him. Um, and with me, it was, you know, they went, they, you know, it was everything from my uh, spending, you know, which I didn't spend any money, particularly compared to the other bureaus. But sure. uh, and my communication, they said I didn't I didn't communicate. I didn't talk to them very often, which was actually there was some truth to that. But <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so, you know, they they were they encouraged me to find employment elsewhere. John, I wanted to ask you one more question before we let you go. Uh, and this is just about I mean, it's interesting to me to watch what's happening in, in Europe as you have thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in the street uh, for economic reasons, right? With economic mm-hmm. demands. Uh, you had thousands protesting across France yesterday. They want higher wages to offset inflation. Uh, you had p- teachers, railway workers and health workers striking and staging marches in dozens of cities. Uh, you had protests in Belgium earlier this month by teachers who want the same thing. Uh, you've had demonstrations of tens of thousands of people in the Czech Republic, Hungary and Germany. Again, they want state support. They want pay raises. They want government intervention in the energy market. And in some instances, uh, the they have a political call for the government to end sanctions against Russia, to you know find a way to work with Russia to get more energy. And I think the political aspect of some of these protests has been ignored in a lot of Western reporting until very recently. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal did mention it today that there were demonstrations in Germany uh, wanting an end to sanctions against Russia, uh, you know, warning Europe about the political risks it could face if this uh, conflict in Ukraine continues. And I wonder, one, I wonder what you think it would take to get Americans in the street over economic issues because we're not, that's not a thing that people get out. We get out for abortion. We get out for, um, you know, issues of police brutality, racism. You don't see Americans threatening, uh, you know, coming together, not in unions, I guess, to demand that the government support them economically. And I, I wonder, you know, what, what it would take to get Americans to do that. And then I also wonder, you know, what, if these protests start to get more political, what that angle is going to look like. I think what it would take is another Great Depression, um, uh, which I, I've cited before. Uh, I think, you know, uh, it's like the, uh, um, if I can get a little bit obscure for one second, it's like the Italian theorist uh, Antonio Gramsci wrote, uh, people don't, people aren't, their political consciousness is not awakened until they hit rock bottom. Um, and, and I think that's what it's going to take for the United States, and particularly when you understand the sophistication of these protests, not just in Europe, right, which where they are definitely linking their economic crises with 
the invasion of Ukraine and NATO, right? That's very clearly going on. But you also see these protests in South Africa, you see them in Argentina, where they're making yeah. very sophisticated demands that that they restructure uh, the political system to avoid state capture by corporations. I think in South Africa, they're demanding a nationalized bank. I mean, very sophisticated understanding of the economy that completely yeah. eludes, almost completely eludes us in the United States because we really haven't had a conversation. We haven't had a conversation about class and really we haven't had a real conversation about the role that race plays in, in the class struggle, uh, you know, I don't think since at least the Reagan administration. Uh, and so, um, you know, I just think we have to hit rock bottom before we in the United States take to the streets. And even then, I think it's going to be very messy because, of course, we're going to blame immigrants. We're going to blame uh, liberals. We're going to blame other liberals deserve some blame, actually. Uh, you know, we're going to yes. blame everybody but uh, the people who uh, are actually responsible, which is the the super rich. Uh, so, yeah, it's um. It's, a, it's an uphill fight. I think we have a lot of work to do. We're kind of starting at zero again. Uh, and we're actually in a place, I think, that is uh, not nearly as advanced as we were even in 1929 when the Great Depression struck. And, and meaning that I think our political understanding, our, our consciousness was maybe even a little bit higher back then, if you can believe that, despite all the technology that we see now. Uh, but no. it, yeah, there's just not a, there's just not much sophistication among the American population. Not much understanding. I think that's a good point. I think it requires a, a level of political education to mm -hmm. be able to make a demand and then assess that that demand has been met. Right? Because what happens so often? I mean, I can see if people went out and wanted health care reform. The government would put together, present, and implement a package that just would send more public money to private health insurers in the form of subsidies. Right? And if you don't understand, if you don't understand. The that that is actually bad, that that's not a solution in the long term, you know, you accept that. I think there has been a, you know, I don't know if it's been a deliberate long-term project, but certainly Americans are politically really ignorant of how our government actually functions and, and actually works. And, it, and, and so, yeah, the ability... If I could just say very quickly, if you, if, if, if your audience would go to YouTube and look at this videotape of Jeffrey Sachs, he was at some conference and oh, right. uh, yes. just, I just, just saw this yesterday. It, it was a, it's amazing the way the the moderator is Steve Erlanger, who is I think the chief diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. But it, it shows how and Jeffrey Sachs starts talking about the violence done by the United States, especially since 1950, in the name of imperialism. And Erlanger just shuts him down, and that's why people don't have the understanding. The 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 liberals, especially, but also the right wing, of course, but they've always done this. They they don't have a counter argument, so they just shut down the conversation. So we we you know we we're just bombarded with Trump, you know, uh, 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 you know, with 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 you know uh, this, this these cries against these protests against woke culture, and people just don't really have any sort of deep understanding of the very real issues that affect us. Yeah, absolutely. John Jeter, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you uh, where both. do you want our listeners to go to find more of your work? Oh, actually, I'm launching. Uh, I believe on Monday, a new website called blackrepublicmedia.com. Black Republic Media, not Black Black Republican Media, <laughs> as some people have, have confused it. So that is my launch uh, on Monday, and I'm working on that with a several other uh, accomplished, uh, or no, I should say they're accomplished. I'm, I'm just following their footsteps, journalists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. That's great. I'm looking forward to it. All right. We'll talk to you again soon, Thank John. Thanks both. for joining us. Great. Thank you. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll talk to you in a sec. 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've got some stories about Northern Ireland, a bit about European politics, and mm-hmm. France and Germany finding some common ground. Got some Kanye West stories if we have time. And also, so more updates on this uh, break-in at yeah. Nancy Pelosi's house. Again, they continue to be, we haven't really gotten uh, an update from police or from spokespeople, but these sources right. keep adding more detail. Yes. And the latest anonymously sourced detail is that this does seem to be targeted. They're saying the, um, this is an ABC correspondent yes. saying uh, the suspect came in through a sliding glass door, was carrying a hammer and was looking for Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, shouting, where's Nancy? Where's yeah. Nancy? Which is, we will have to see what, you know, again, yeah. I'm going to see what happened. Like, I, I recall the Uvalde school in. shooting, right? Mm-hmm. Where like everything that was, things yeah, was changed. Yeah. So right. we'll see. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, if this remains true, doesn't look like a financially motivated break-in. No. But no. we'll see. We'll see what shakes out. Um, other news. Oh, I saw this MTG story. Yeah, sorry, ben, ben was sending us a tweet from Marjorie Taylor Greene. I was joking uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday was tweeting, just wait for tomorrow, something like that. But I think she was talking about Elon Musk. Pretty sure it wasn't Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene who's in custody now, but that'd be pretty funny. Um, I mean, it'd be terrible, but. How does she have 1.1 million Twitter vo- uh, followers? I mean, people, people right. Do people taste. follow her for the, for the comedic value? I don't think so. Um, in Northern Ireland, they're probably going to have to have another election. They haven't formed. Yeah. So we talked in May about the historic win by Sinn Féin, who is, of course, a, a nationalist party. Mm-hmm. They won a majority of seats in the Northern Irish Parliament. Um, and since then, they have not been able to form a government because the main pro-union party, mm-hmm. the DUP, uh, refused to join in this power sharing government structure. The DUP is mad about these post-Brexit trade rules called the Northern Irish Protocol, uh, which established border checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, so in that sea border, rather than creating a land border, yes. border checks between Ireland and Northern Ireland, because that is an extremely politically sensitive issue. Right. right? And the Republic of Ireland remains in the EU. They didn't want to deal with a full land border for goods coming from the EU over that land border. The, the Northern Irish Protocol made sense, was agreed upon. I do think uh, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss made some noises about changing it, but I have not seen, that has not come to pass. No. But neither has a government for Northern Ireland. Because according- That was a surprise to me. Well, because it has this power sharing arrangement, right? Where you have to share a government between nationalist and unionist forces. And so Sinn Féin won. Uh, Michelle O'Neill is the first minister- uh, of Sinn Féin, the DUP has to nominate a deputy minister. I don't know what the official name for it is. And then some other officials. And the DUP has just refused. They right. had a deadline of midnight, you know, 1201 Friday morning yep. to form a government. They haven't. And so likely they are looking at, uh, an, you know, another election. Also, I mean, again, this is early days and I'm not a Northern Ir- Ireland specialist, but the predictions that I've seen is that the result would be basically the same. Yes. So, you know, then you say, well, how, what is supposed to, you know, power sharing governments like these are sort of tricky because you can just sort of sit out and the Sinn Féin doesn't have an option to form a coalition with some other, with, you know, other parties as far as I understand it. So, you know. Yes. Calls into question. It's funny because the the Northern Ireland part of this originally worked. 
-hmm. it was the sure. it was the English, you know, Tory party policy that didn't work or their desire to change the policy that didn't work. And now here we are two prime ministers later in uh, the UK and there's still chaos in Northern Ireland. Yep. Sinn Féin has also been saying that because of the changed political landscape, uh, the Republic of Ireland should have a consultative role in running Northern Ireland. Uh, which is interesting. Oh, that uh, is they interesting. would consult along with Britain if this deadlock over a power sharing government can't be broken. Right. Uh, the British government has said it is not considering joint authority over the North, although it does not want to return to direct rule. This is a quote from a New York Times analysis. So, yeah, it'll Very be interesting, interesting to see what happens. I, I think we will probably try and talk a little bit more about this um, next week. Also in Europe, um, we talked about the meeting between Olaf Scholz, yes. the German chancellor, and, and French Emmanuel president, Macron. Emmanuel Macron. Um, they didn't have a press conference after their lunch meeting on Wednesday. It's a, a, a very big snub for Scholz. But they apparently did have a relatively convivial lunch because they were able to agree uh, that the U.S. <laughs> is uh, the U.S. is enacting measures that they consider to be protectionist and they might need to join forces to challenge them. Yes, indeed. Yeah, which is interesting. This is particularly about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which invested quite a lot in, in U.S. industry. Um, and it offers tax cuts and energy benefits to companies investing on U.S. soil, which they find to be uh, beyond what should be allowable. That's right. Uh, it's particularly when it comes to electric vehicles. And uh, France and Germany have major car industries. So what I'm told is the message from this lunch is that if the U.S. does not scale back on some of these incentives to uh, keep companies investing and buying in the United States, the EU is going to have to initiate some kind of uh, yes. regulatory challenge or, you know, trade challenge to this. Maybe go to the WTO. I don't know. What would be the first forum for that? And, you know, when when you are a superpower and you have muscled your allies into buying your natural gas at four times the cost. Yeah. Now is not the time that you want to further anger them. Yeah. By making trade this much more difficult. But also Joe Biden has to, I mean, you know, we should be investing in American industry and manufacturing, sure, right? Sure. Joe Biden has to also do that. And How not you... just in semiconductors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it is, you know, uh, France and, and Germany really at odds when it comes to at odds when it comes to, you know, yes. politics, I think, at odds when it comes to what's a solution for this energy crisis, but united in being mad at the United States. Yeah, and they are indeed. I mean, we'll see what they can do about it, right? Schultz, because they have they have made their bed. They have. Schultz went on to Athens after that lunch and had a very productive meeting with Prime Minister Mitsotakis, pledged German support for Greece's, you know, independence and security from Turkey. Uh, but more importantly, he's going on to uh, to Beijing. Yeah. And um, and we'll meet with Xi Jinping there. Yeah. And we'll legitimize Xi Jinping. Yeah, he'll legitimize. How long Xi has Olaf Schultz been in office? Unbelievable. A year? Like, yeah. Yeah. The tops. Yeah. Yeah. Legitimize Xi Jinping. Uh, again, talking about Kanye West, not because Kanye West is saying political things to be taken seriously, but just because it does because at some point it becomes so horribly funny that I just can't resist. This is from CNN yesterday. Um, several people who were once close to the artist, formerly known as Kanye West, because I guess he's yay now, whatever, 
uh, told CNN he has long been fascinated by Adolf Hitler and wanted to name his 2018 album Hitler. Someone needed to come for Kanye West a long time ago. Oh, yeah, this isn't new. A long time ago. If your buddy is saying, hey, I think I'm going to call my album Hitler, something you have to— There wasn't— one talk. record company executive to say, buddy, listen, we need to sit and talk. Well, they did. I mean, they didn't let him name. They didn't <laughs> let him name the album Hitler. But also they probably all thought, well, we need to get this album out by some other name because we all want to make the money that it's going to make. And let's just get Kanye to not be so overtly insane. And you mentioned Donda, the Donda Academy oh, last yeah. week. Yeah. And, and he abruptly shut it down. No notice, no nothing. The Donda Academy no longer exists. No, then they opened it back up. Oh, they did? Yes, they oh shut my it God. down. They shut it down. <laughs> and then like a couple hours later, sent out a, a an email saying uh, it's open again. I oh will say God. again, one of the reports <laughs> about Donda, uh, I forget what outlet it was, you know, so, some mainstream media outlet, a blue, blue check reporter saying uh, Kanye West's expensive private academy uh, shut down abruptly. Listen, say what you want about Donda. I'm sure it's a bad education. Not expensive. It's not expensive. No. It's, I mean, it's expensive compared no, no. to public school. Sure. But fifteen thousand dollars for uh-uh. private school is not expensive in the U.S. Nope. You gotta, I'll take you know, it. be accurate with your criticisms. Indeed. Uh, yeah, and again, the CNN story—it's—it's uh, it's anonymously sourced, but I did see in all the reporting about it, you had people saying, "Oh yeah, I heard this. Like, every this has been an open secret in the music industry. You know, we just couldn't talk about it." But this, so it gives me some sense that you know, the, the, it possibly, possibly this is true. And again, it just like it's. It's so it's so wild. And I'm sure that uh, again, I'm sure that this is not a sort of I don't know. I feel quite confident that Kanye West doesn't have a coherent uh, uh, understanding of, uh, you know, uh, the Third Reich. And, no, and no, Hitler and, support, and supports it in a coherent way. He can still oh, be yeah. a bad dude. I'm not defending him saying, I think Kanye West is a oh, great sure. guy. I think any billionaire is a bad person. I think Kanye West is a bad person. Yeah. But I also think he is a crazy person. And you have a, I had friends with schizophrenia. Sure. Who are also like incredibly creative, uh, smart people. And it can be hard to to know what the line is when you are talking to somebody about some idea uh, that's wild, but like, beautiful, like an inc- a beautiful uh, ambition, right? right? That you can barely follow, but it makes sense. And you need people who, you know, you think, oh, maybe this person's just smarter than I am, yes, you know, and more creative than I am and more driven than I am, right? And you can go down that road a ways because people have to be allowed to, you know, people, people have to be able to pursue their uh, ambitious, creative, smart visions yes. that don't make any sense in the world and then crack open some new plane. When your friend is telling you about this idea and then it starts to involve the Nazis or uh, and also I'm going to put Hitler over here in the corner because I think he had some good ideas. That's when you go, okay, I don't think this is just going over my head anymore. Right. Which, again, is not to say that actual anti-Semitism and fascism and neo-Nazis don't exist. I just still from what I have observed, that's not what Kanye West is doing. He's a he's a bad dude who's also going Going nutty going and has been for a while and really oh, yeah. should should have. This is not a new development. Should have listened to the people who I'm sure were at some point saying, hey, buddy, you know, yeah. we, should, we should manage your illness differently. You need to take responsibility for it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows if Kanye West puts together some. I'll eat my words if Kanye West, you know, joins uh, Adam Waffen or whatever. Sure. And uh, and comes out <laughs> and has some like defense <laughs> of his position that is, you know, vile, but uh 
logical. Yes. But I don't expect, I'm not going to hold my breath <laughs> waiting for that to show up. Now, that, that's probably maximum Kanye West reporting for, for political misfits <laughs> for the month. I think we'll have to, we'll, we can try and drop the rest of it. Um, what else is going Oh, one last story I'm going to squeeze in here. Speaking of nutty stories in Politico. So I just think it's funny that Politico magazine has an article by a political opinion writer saying, stop blaming the press for Donald Trump's success. <laughs> right. That's goofy after, enough. After it's been proven that they gave him $1 billion worth of free press coverage. Don't blame then, John. Yeah, it's not their fault. But also, here's the first line. The delusion that a lackadaisical ratings mad media somehow elected Donald Trump to the presidency has danced full thighed back into the news conversation. I don't even full know what that means. Thighed. Even if it's full throated, it doesn't make sense because no. you don't dance in a full throated way. I'm going to say Jack Schaefer, do a little something before you, you sit down to editor. write. You know what I mean? Do yes. that thing you do before you go on a date. That's right. We're going to take a break here on Political Misfits. Come right back. We're live on Radio Sputnik. We're in D.C. We'll talk to you in a sec. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Violence continues to flare in the West Bank as Israeli forces attack Palestinians there. Two Palestinians were killed at a checkpoint outside Nablus this morning. The two men were apparently sitting in a car near the checkpoint when Israeli soldiers opened fire on them. This comes just five days after Israeli troops raided Nablus's old city, killing five more Palestinians including two barbers who were sitting in their barber chairs waiting for the day to start. The Israeli government says that it's concerned over a new opposition group based in Nablus called the Lion's Den, which claims to have killed an Israeli soldier several weeks ago. According to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, Israeli troops have killed 186 Palestinian civilians this year in the occupied West Bank and another 51 in Gaza. Israeli elections will be held on Tuesday, but literally nobody is talking about any prospects for peace, and the two-state solution is all but dead. We're joined by Richard Becker. Richard is the author of Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire, and he's the Western Region Coordinator for the Answer Coalition. Richard, welcome back. It's been a long time. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me on. So glad to have you. Violence in the West Bank is nothing new, but something seems to be new about what's happening right now in Nablus. Can you tell us what the lion's den is, and what is the situation on the ground there? Well, I, I actually uh, think it's difficult to say with uh, in a definitive way, but what uh, all reports indicate is that it is a recently formed kind of a network or, or a loose organization of activists who have been in the past and perhaps in other organizations or perhaps in no organization but who are responding to the incredible uh, assaults that are going on. You know, we hear in the, in the media here, at least to a limited degree, about um, the, the uh, fight back by the Palestinians. What we don't hear in the media here is that, for instance, between uh, October 11th and October 21st of this year, the 10 days, there were more than 100 attacks on Palestinians by these extreme right-wing, I would say, fascist uh, settler gangs. 
uh, who, uh, you know, are all over the West Bank now. So that's going to draw a response. That's great. And, and we see the response happening. And, uh, and of course, these settlers are protected by the, uh, the so-called Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, which are really the occupation forces, and who very often join in in the attacks on the Palestinians. Uh, and so uh, you, you can see that the situation is becoming more and more intense and more and more heated. And that uh, the word is that there are different kinds of groups forming of, Pal of Palestinians to fight, to engage in, uh, in struggle against these fascist attacks and against the occupation. Mm -hmm. Janine also has been the scene of Israeli violence this year. Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akla, an American citizen and one of the most highly respected journalists in the Middle East, was murdered in cold blood in Janine earlier this year. Nobody specifically was held responsible, even though the Israelis admitted that a soldier had killed her. Is violence in Janine and Nablus connected? Um, and what has been the trigger? Is is it still the, the notion of the Israelis seizing Palestinian land? Well, uh, the seizure of land goes on day in and day out, yes. taking over more and more land. You know, 20 years ago uh, this year, I was in Janine, following the uh, a battle that took place there when the Israeli military reoccupied the Janine refugee camp and all the cities of the West Bank. And I witnessed firsthand that, that uh, bulldozers had been used, armored bulldozers had been used to completely demolish uh, the center of the Janine refugee camp, which is a major camp attached to Janine City. Uh, so, you know, there's Janine has been a center of, of resistance. There are many centers of resistance, but Janine in particular has been one. And I, I think there's no question that the rising level of resistance uh, by the Palestinians, both armed resistance and unarmed resistance, uh, is, is intensifying in response to the, uh, the long-term oppression, the occupation, and uh, particularly the the surge in fascist attacks on Palestinians in that area, the northern part of the West Bank, but throughout the West Bank. Richard, tell us a little bit more about the Janine refugee camp and some of these other refugee camps. I think most Americans don't realize that these camps, many of them were established right after uh, the 1948 uh, uh, war. And you've got four, in some cases, five generations of Palestinian families living as refugees in their own country in some of these camps. Yeah, you know, and Janine is particularly um, interesting, and I would say particularly appalling, that uh, I, at the Janine refugee camp, you can, if you're up a little bit uh, high above the camp uh, where the mosque is, you can look right into... Uh, the plain of Megiddo, uh, which was wow. very, very rich, some of the richest uh, land in the whole region. Uh, this huge plain, it's where, you know, supposedly the Battle of Armageddon was supposed to take place, or right. is supposed to take place in some people's uh, view. But, you know, so he, th that was their land. That was the land of the people who were forced into these. Uh, it, it's near the border, what, what became the border in 1948 of the state of Israel. But you can clearly, you can plainly see there's our land that was stolen from us. Uh, and here we are in these cramped, 
uh, uh, refugee camps, terrible sanitation, not enough to eat. I mean, all of those things that go along with uh, with being forced into uh, to take refuge. Uh, so, you know, it's pretty understandable why uh, why people who are forced into those circumstances are going to find ways to resist. I wanted to ask you, too, about um, settlements and settlers. One of the core issues that leads to this violence, of course, is that Israeli settlers continue to forcibly take land from Palestinian families, bulldoze their olive trees, seize their homes. Is there any positive news on this front at all? Are there any viable Israeli political parties that are opposed to these seizures, which have been declared illegal by the United Nations and by international courts? Well, uh, I think that the answer to that is, aside from some individuals, courageous individuals inside Israel who support the Palestinians, and there are, there are, there are some, they're a minority for sure. Uh, but if you look at the parties that make up the government, and you know we're about to have another election there, the the other election is coming right. in Tuesday, uh, uh, just this uh, next week. And people are saying, well, what's going to happen with this election? What's going to be the outcome of it? What will it mean for the Palestinians? Well, we don't have to speculate by looking into the future. We can look at the present. The present government, which the liberals are hoping will continue to be the government, headed by Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz, uh, that got, that's the hope for liberaldom. And, and as they sit in office today, not after another election, but today, uh, the settlers carry out, you know, these atrocities mm-hmm. and the military carries out its atrocities every day and the land continues to be seized. So, you know, if, if we really uh, take that into account, then we can judge really what the uh, what the future really holds in terms of uh, what kind of government will be headed by Lapid and Gantz or will be headed by Netanyahu. That's not really going to determine anything. That's not going to be the 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 the, uh, the factor that uh, that determines how things go and whether there's optimism. The optimism will come out of the resistance of the people there and resistance of people around the world, and yeah. most importantly, in the United States, because all of this that goes on, uh, all of the atrocities against the Palestinians, that could not take place without the support that comes from Washington, day in and day out, both in financial. Uh, and economic terms, but also in the diplomatic protection that uh, the protective umbrella over the state of Israel mm-hmm. that is that is provided by the government of the United States. Richard, I wonder if you think there is an, a, a corollary that, uh, you know, because it's sort of facilitated by support from the outside, that support from the outside for Palestinians, for Palestinian human rights, uh, for the Palestinian cause, is also as important because it does seem like um, Palestine has kind of fallen by the wayside in light of, uh, you know, the conflict in Ukraine really taking center stage, people figuring out how they feel about it, what's the right side to be on, what's the right statement to have. And you don't see quite as much uh, of this sort of discourse with regard to Palestine. And I wonder if you think that uh, how important you think outside support is and uh, how much it's going to matter if it sort of falls by the wayside, at least for a while. I think it's extremely important. And I think it's extremely important to the Palestinian people (coughs) and particularly to those who are engaged in the struggle and who are holding out uh, against, 
you know, all of this that's going on. I mean, the, and the, the, the day in and day out violence and brutality and inequality and discrimination. Uh, the Palestinians have uh, the, the idea, the Israeli idea, the dominant idea in the Israeli uh, ruling circles is uh, to drive out the Palestinians, to drive out those who are remaining and to make life as difficult as possible for them. But the Palestinians are not leaving. Their steadfastness is a form, I would say, of courage and of heroism, in fact, um, that isn't embodied in a single act, a single heroic act, but it's persisting. It's steadfastness in the face of all of this oppression that goes on. And so uh, the uh, acts of solidarity that come from outside of Palestine, and particularly those that come from the United States, uh, are extremely important in in bolstering the spirits of the Palestinian uh, people who are who, as I said, are are really resisting in in a, in a truly heroic fashion. Richard, the Israelis this week um, sealed off the entire Palestinian town of Huwara. Um, why? Because an eight-year-old child threw a stone at an Israeli bus. Wow. They sealed off the entire town. This irrational collective punishment does nothing but inflame the situation, and it seems to be spreading. Do you see any hope for improvement in the coming months? Is there anything that's happening there that makes you think, well, all's not lost? We can, we can look positively toward the future. <clears throat> well, I think that we have to look positively toward the future because otherwise you have to just give up. Yeah, true. Uh, and we're not giving up and the Palestinians are not giving up and they've made that very clear. I mean, the, the level of, of brutality and, and, and oppression that's been inflicted and is inflicted on a day-to-day basis on the Palestinians is, is like really beyond description. It really, and, and it, it does not show up in the mainstream media here at all. Uh, so I think that the, the, the hope for something better, uh, is, I think is very much tied to the struggle of the people there, uh, to the other Arab countries as well, which is very important. And, and the, the issue of Palestine continues to be, you know, one that's, I, I think, clearly in the hearts of all the people of the Arab world in the Middle East. Uh, so uh, it's it's those actions, it's the actions by the people, it's the struggle that continues uh, that I think gives real hope. You know, and I, I just should mention, you know, there was a woman, who, a 70-year-old Israeli woman named uh, Hagar Gethin, who was out supporting with other some other uh, progressive Israelis the Palestinian olive harvest a few days ago. She was attacked and the others were attacked, but she in particular was targeted by these fascist gangs. They beat her, her ribs were broken, punctured lung, um, a broken hand, head injuries. And, and, uh, and, and you know, that doesn't show up at all in the media here. Uh, and in fact, to make it even more atrocious, the police claimed that it was mutual assault. Oh my gosh. Uh, and that she had to come in and the other people who were there supporting the Palestinian olive harvest, they had to come in for questioning, but there was no uh, indication that any of the fascists were being called in for questioning. So that's the reality of the situation. You mentioned a minute ago, Richard, that Israeli elections are going to be held on Tuesday. And the conventional wisdom is that Benjamin Netanyahu will emerge as the leader of a weak coalition. He'll hang on for a year or 18 months and then the government will collapse. This is what's happened in the last four Israeli elections. 
An Israeli Knesset member told me recently, about six weeks ago, that there are only two issues in this election, security and Netanyahu. So knowing what's likely and knowing that there are three Israeli Arab parties uh, that will likely be represented in the Knesset, with small numbers, granted, what are the chances of Arab Israelis being a part of a coalition government again? Do you think there's any hope for them to put the brakes on settlements? Well, again, I would say that, you know, uh, we don't have to speculate about the future. We can look at the, the reality of the present. Indeed. Uh, and that is here we have the liberal government headed by uh, Lapid and Gantz that today sits in the uh, office of prime minister and defense minister. They're the government. They're leading the government. And all the things that we've been talking about have been going on while they are the government. Uh, will it get worse with the uh, with a Netanyahu-led government with the two fascist parties headed by uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich? Right. Uh, very possibly the repression. It'll that'll be a green light to the to the fascists. And and I, I'm not using the term hyperbolically or loosely. The fascists in the West Bank, the fascist gangs, they will um, they will feel that they have the green light to do whatever. Uh, at the same time, if the uh, if if the Arab Israeli parties are not in the government, I, the government, the liberals are worried that that will lead to uh, further uh, alienation. And, and, and this is I'm speaking of alienation of the Palestinians who live inside the 1948 borders of Israel, uh, and it could lead to a new intifada. So there, are, right. it's, a, it's a complicated situation. Uh, but I think the the it's very much up in the air at this point. Uh, but again, I would say let's look at what exists today in terms of the liberals sitting in the seats of power, uh, and and what we see, you know, hundreds of uh, attacks being carried out over the last several months. Richard, what can you tell us about um, Israeli relations with? Uh, the Gulf states and with Saudi Arabia. Of course, there are no formal relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but unofficially, uh, they agree on a lot of things, especially on Iran. Israel now has formal diplomatic relations with Bahrain, with Qatar, uh, with four or five other Arab countries. What about the Saudis? What are you hearing there? Well, I think that's hard to say because... Uh, what, we, what we can say is that the, the these alliances that um, the Abraham Accords and the other openings have all virtually all been, with the exception of Egypt, with monarchies. Mm-hmm. With these absolute monarchies, with you know the the fat, familial uh, absolute monarchies, and and that's something that you know uh, they brag about and boast about. That's supposed to be a good thing. These are like uh, horrific governments. Uh, yeah. That and that the uh, is Israel has opened up the relations with uh, Saudi Arabia. I think is uh, because of it, its its history. It's an absolute monarchy, a, a, a terrible government as yeah. well. Of course, a brutal government, um, but is a little bit concerned. I think about openly uh, 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 having these kind of relations develop with the state of Israel, uh, given its its. Uh, the fact that it's the site of Mecca and Medina and the holiest sites of Islam. Indeed. I want to ask you also about, um, about Iran and the role that 
Iran plays as sort of a a thorn in relations between the United States and Israel. Uh, going back to the George W. Bush administrations, the uh, administration, the Israelis have been begging us to go to war with Iran. Even when I was still in the CIA, and we're talking 20 years ago now, um, it was every conversation we had with the Israeli government was about launching an attack on Iran. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama et al. Uh, held that off. Uh, but now the Israelis are cultivating these relationships with the Gulf monarchies who hate Iran as much as the Israelis do. Do you think that we're in a period where we're at a heightened um, a heightened uh, danger of conflict with Iran because of the Israelis demanding that we do their dirty work for them? Or do you think we've held them off on that score? Well, I think that the situation is one where we have to look at objectively uh, uh, Iran, and Iran is not Iraq. Um, the, right. You know, back in 20, 2002, uh, Bush II said that uh, there was, you know, that the axis of evil was Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, which made no sense whatsoever. None. But then uh, within a year, Iraq w- was destroyed. And, and of course, uh, you know, the idea there was that Iran and North Korea would be too. North Korea accelerated its nuclear arms program. Iran uh, is a country that uh, is several times larger than Iraq, much more developed economically, much more developed militarily. Uh, and and uh, so, uh, and also the... Uh, what 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 would the U.S. do if they engage in a war there? Are they going to? Uh, they'd like to bring about regime change. The U.S. leadership, and, and and regardless of what the government has been, would like to have brought about regime change. But that's that's uh, not that's easy, more easily talked about than actually accomplished. Uh, and Iran has uh, is also connected to uh, what is forces that are resisting. Uh, in in Iraq, in Syria, uh, and in Lebanon, and so uh, the it's not a simple it's not a simple answer. There's not a simple answer to this or a simple solution uh, to what Washington and Tel Aviv view as the you know the Iranian danger. And the uh, and in fact, uh, it, it may lead them into something that uh, could. Uh, you know, we saw what happened with Iraq and a right. smaller country, smaller populations, much uh, lower level of military development. And the U.S. couldn't uh, conquer the country. They lost the war, in fact, and had to pay the opposition to stop shooting at them. Yeah, it's happened so more than once. It's a, big, it's a big bite to take. Indeed it is. Richard, I think I know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you see any electoral scenario at all? next week that would give you hope uh, for a de-escalation of violence in Israel or for a, a rebirth of the peace process in any form? Well, the peace process is presented to us as having been uh, subverted by the Palestinians. But of course, that's not the case. Uh, you know, way back when, when there were actually talks still going on, I think in 2007, 2008, uh, there was a, an advisor to the uh, to the PLO who said, uh, "It's like we're negotiating over a pizza, and one side is eating the pizza while we're doing that." Uh, 
and and that's and that meant the the Israelis are taking more and more land every day, and they've continued to up until the present. I think that the 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 hope is uh, again in the struggle of the people there, uh, with the support and the solidarity of people uh, around the world. I don't I don't think the election uh, will present anything good. It could present an even worse. Uh, situation than is now. That's certainly possible. We should never say it can't get any worse. It can. Yes, it can. Uh, but I think that the Palestinians are going to hold out. I think the level of struggle is rising. The str- the possibility of, of a new, more generalized uprising is very real. And that's in the minds of, and has to be in the minds of both the leaders in Washington and in and, and Tel Aviv. Finally, Richard, last question. What do you think the next year holds for the Palestinians and for Israel? Well, that's, of course, very hard to say. I mean, the when there are uprisings like there were, you know, a year and a half ago, uh, there are certain when when the when Israel pushes things over the edge, which they did then with the attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Yes. Uh, and that brought about a new level of struggle. You know, we don't. Uh, or a new, new struggle of fighting and a new, like, uh, bombing, like these relentless bombing attacks on Gaza, which has no air defenses whatsoever. Uh, can that happen again? Yes, it can happen again. Can it happen again based on other developments uh, other than, you know, what's going on at Al-Aqsa Mosque? Yes. And what's going on in the West Bank today can lead to a new uprising, a new intifada. It's, it's a possibility. I'm not predicting it, but it certainly is a possibility and certainly in the minds of, uh, of, of the occupiers. Indeed. Well, thanks for joining us, Richard Becker. Richard is the author of Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire, and he's the Western Region Coordinator for the Answer Coalition. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and we'll come right back. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as we have elections coming up in Israel next week, we have elections coming up in Brazil yeah. this weekend. Important elections. Important elections. Uh, elections that, uh, I was going to say, the results probably still foretold, but Closer, perhaps, than people would like. And in addition to having regional implications, uh, there are people who say this election in Brazil has extremely important implications for the entire planet, considering how much of the Amazon falls within Brazil's borders. Um, I am very curious uh, as to how much the sort of regional and international stacks up against the domestic for the Brazilians who are actually going to be voting over the weekend Maybe our next guest can answer that for me. We're joined by Dennis Rogatuk. He's the international director of El Ciudadano Media Platform. He lives in Latin America. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Michelle. John, how are you? Welcome back. Cheers. So uh, Brazilians are going to vote this weekend in a runoff election between two men who have held the position of president already, uh, incumbent Jair Bolsonaro and former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. 
The election will determine a lot about the near future of Brazil, but it always also, as I said, has uh, very real implications for the region and the world. And I want to start by asking, uh, you know, where things stand right now in terms of polling, because the throughout this campaign, Lula has led. Uh, but Bolsonaro has pretty, you know, he he has uh, lost and gained and he performed better in the first round of election than people predicted. So I, I wonder who you think has momentum and where things stand now. Well, I think when we look just at the raw numbers, when we look at the uh, latest polling films and the, and the aggregation, uh, Lula seems to have an advantage of uh, between four and six uh, percent. Most of the uh, most of the uh, polls that I've seen uh, uh, lately, I say I'd say in the last in the last week, showed uh, say, showed Lula ahead by by approximately six six percent. Uh, so that's the uh, particularly, I think, the the, the the polling data that's most, uh, or that I would say would be the most ac- accurate, comes from the uh, firms that are called uh, Data Folha, uh, Atlas, and IPAC. Uh, uh, so, so these are, let's say, the, the major uh, polling firms in Brazil, and who actually also had, um, also, also, also predicted. Uh, the results in the first round with with the, with the most accuracy. And all of them uh, show uh, Lula still with a uh, still with an advantage, but this is an advantage which uh, falls, uh, say, within the margin of error between mm. of, of approximately four, of approximately four percent. What these polling firms do not really demonstrate is. I say, well, the existence or the uh, the, the probability of what, what what I would call, you know, this hidden uh, vote. Mm-hmm. This hidden vote is actually something that we discussed on our previous program uh, as well. See, before the first round of the election, during that time, I mentioned that uh, the hidden vote would be more likely to uh, preference uh, Lula in the first round. It might actually help him to win the election, but that proved to be uh, a, a mistake on, on my part. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we have actually seen is that, you know, the so-called hidden vote or, you know, this undecided vote actually favoring uh, Bol- Bolsonaro. And I believe that, you know, one of the reasons for that, as, uh, at least in the first round of the election, was, uh, I'll say, was not, not just, to say, you know, the usual, you know, the media campaign, the dirty tactics, the, the fake news, uh, but also this... Um, I say this really this long term uh, campaign has been waged against against Lula. That is, you know, portraying him as you know as as a criminal, as someone who was who was already been to prison. You know, someone who has already been convicted, even though he even though his innocence was proven. But still, you know, this uh, you know this uh, legacy, this legacy of this uh, of this uh, you know uh, of this media campaign, this extremely. Uh, you know, say violent media campaign of Lula still played a part in pushing the, I say, the undecided and the, you know, the hidden vote in Bolsonaro's favor in the first round. Now, second round dynamics, I would say, uh, would be a bit different uh, to the to the first one, and I think here it's important to uh, mention the role that that has been played. Say, by the third party candidates, particularly Sereta Simon Tebet of the Brazilian Democratic Movement and of Ciro Gomes of the Brazilian. Uh, Labour Party, both of whom supported, have now endorsed and supported uh, Lula's uh, candidacy. What what is driving Brazilians in this election? Do you think what is going to what's going to activate them to go to the polls? Because from the outside, and of course, you know, the Amazon is a, also 
a very big issue in Brazil, uh, I believe. But that is something that the world is watching. And of course, you have leftists you know, hoping to add Brazil to a sort of swathe of of leftist governments across the continent. But I'm not sure those concerns are really high on the list for the people who are going to the polls. I have to agree with, uh, with Michelle. The key, one of the key, uh, really, the key, the key parameters, you know, the key uh, arguments of Lula, uh, for example, have been, you know, the, the, the economic issues. That is the, uh, you know, the issues of, you know, the cost, the, the cost of living, uh, education, healthcare, uh, all the, you know, all of the issues, all the problems that have basically been ignored by Bolsonaro's government in the last three or four years, up until yeah, it's quite interesting, up until July this year, yeah. when uh, Bolso- when Bolsonaro actually released this uh, kind of what you, I think he called it the emergency uh, budget, which included a. Uh, uh, kind of like a, a whole sort of series of different social programs that were meant uh, to benefit uh, particularly the, the poor and the working classes, and especially in the northern northern and northeast uh, part of the country, which has been, I would say, the base, like, you know, the real sort of political and electoral base of the Workers' Party and of, of, of Lula's campaign, uh, Lula's, uh, you know, supporters. For a, for a very long time. Uh, what's, what's curious about this is that, you know, this emergency budget actually contradicted an amendment that was made into the Brazilian, Brazilian constitution in 2016, which actually froze the, you know, the percentage of the Brazilian federal budget, budget which could be spent on social programs. So uh, Bolsonaro actually managed, actually managed to, you know, bypass this constitutional amendment, which he supported, you know, which he supported back in 2016 in order to do a bit of a, a cash splash across the disadvantaged and the poorer regions of Brazil, which has been like has been recognized as a as a kind of as a really cheap kind of pork barrel tactics uh, to you know in order to try to uh, you know win over win over the votes um, say from the poorer regions of Brazil. Uh, despite this, however, like this is this was a recognition on the part of Bolsonaro that you know economics. Uh, was the was the was going to be the defining factor in the in the election? And as I said before, you know things like cost of living, you know things like uh, the uh, the damage that has been done to healthcare, to education, to uh, a really really kind of the social fabric uh, of the of the Brazilian society. This is the key here. Uh, this is going to be the key uh, in the election. But of course, it is it is important to to, to note here, like you know, other social issues. Uh, which are going to be in play? Of course, of course, the Amazon <clears throat> has, uh, you know, has been one of the other key, uh, say, uh, you know, themes, topics uh, during this, this this electoral campaign. And Lula has repeatedly said that you know he wants to turn Brazil into a, uh, <clears throat> I'll say, into into one of the key, you know, uh, uh, into the leading nations, climate change leading nations for the preservation. Of the of the Amazon, and in that he also he has also you know received the support of uh, uh, Maria Maria da Silva Maria da Silva. She was his environmental minister during his first government, but then uh, she went to, into the opposition and was actually and actually was uh, say his political rival for quite a long time, but uh, has now uh, seems to have reconciled once again uh, with him. And I think that I think the the whole topic of saving the Amazon was uh, was a key. Uh, in that, and of course, last uh, but not least, has really been the I'll say is the issue of um, I, I say the various uh, identity, identity politics issues. 
which has been played, I'd say, been played and been, tried, been kind of, um, you know, the, the campaign around the identity politics has actually been used a lot more by this by Bolsonaro's side than than Lula's, and in a in a highly negative way. Yeah. Uh, so this has been, <clears throat> you know, this this whole you know you know this whole kind of rant against the gender ideology, uh, you know, this the campaign against the, the LGBTI rights. Uh, you know the, uh, the you know these campaigns for uh, to tr- try to galvanize you know the evangelical basically the, the evangelical community which uh, even which uh, the majority of which previously have supported Bolsonaro's uh, project and and this is a uh, a very important source of campaign funding uh, for Bolsonaro and for other right wing and far right uh, political leaders uh, across uh, Brazil. Let me ask you also, initially, there was some concern that uh, if Lula won, especially if it was a, a close race, that Bolsonaro would would challenge the results, that he would say the election is rigged. He, you know, a lot of documentation of him, you know, laying the groundwork for being able to make such a charge. That talk has died down a little bit. I don't know that because the talk has died down, the possibility has died down. But something else that I've seen you warning about is that even if Lula wins and Bolsonaro accepts defeat, uh, Bolsonaro will do everything in his power to sabotage the transition. And so I wonder, you know, I, I wonder if you still think there is concern that Bolsonaro will ignore the results as they are posted, right? Say this has been fraudulent in some way or uh, what he could do to really make the, the transition process painful for Lula in a way that might, you know, re- really hinder his administration. I believe Bolsonaro has nothing not, has nothing to lose by sabotaging the transition process that's in the case of Lula's victory. Yeah. And I believe that he uh, he he has he has really learned from what happened in Peru uh, last year. That is where the left-wing candidate Pedro Castillo won the election although it yeah. was by a very very thin margin. I think it was just it was the difference of just 25,000 votes. Yeah. In the end, between him and uh, the far-right candidate Kaiko Fujimori, and what Fujimori did was basically try to put every you know legal and political obstacle in the place of Pedro Castillo, you know, to impede to impede a kind of a, a smooth transition uh, to a new government. I believe that Bolsonaro will certainly use a few pages from the Fujimori uh, playbook after you know, in the case of uh, Lula's victory. Uh, now the. Um, I believe, but but the way I think, but the way I think the the, the, the this whole scenario is going to play out, yeah, I do think it might be, uh, might be a, I say a bit different to what I predicted uh, before. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if we are, if we remember uh, during the first round of the election, when the first results were coming in, like the first 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, uh, during that time, I say Bolsonaro was ahead. Mm-hmm. Bolsonaro was, uh, you know, uh, Bolsonaro was was ahead, and uh, because. In Brazil, what it appears to be that they first they count the votes, let's say in in the southern part of the country, and particularly in urban, in the, in the big cities where Bolsonaro did have an advantage. And I believe something similar will happen again. In fact, I uh, <clears throat> recently I saw kind of a simulation of a voting process, I say, in the case of uh, Lula's victory, but so. What it showed is that it's very it's very likely that Lula will only be able to pull ahead in the final count after eighty after eighty eight or eighty nine percent of the vote have been counted, which means which means that you know for the first during the first you know four or five hours after the polls have been closed, 
uh, Bolson, uh, the uh, the uh, there is also going to be showing that you know Bolsonaro is as ahead, you know, right. that Bolsonaro has won. Right. So this, and I believe this could this could be the grounds uh, for him to try to to declare himself winner, or you know, try you know try to commence you know ce- celebrations mm. uh, in in some way. Basically, it's try to impede. Uh, uh, but basically, not not in the sense that try to steal victory outright or steal the result outright, but rather you know create the grounds for confrontation between the two uh, <clears throat> uh, between the two sides. And I believe it's going to be very important uh, for us to keep to keep a close eye uh, on this on the day of the election. Yeah, the the, the also the sort of Bolil, uh, Bolivia pattern. Um, um, in a way, yes. Yeah, just being, you know, uh, not coming from the outside in the form of the OAS, right? But coming from, you know, be, being sort of sprung from the inside. Oh, look, oh, all of a sudden it's shifted to Lula. <laughs> They're trying to take it away from me. Um, I think, I think, Michelle, I, th- I think it's very important to also mention the role of the um, Electoral Tribunal of, of Brazil, mm-hmm. which has actually been, I would say, more of an adversary than an ally to Bolsonaro, and which, and and I think it might have also been one of the reasons why Bolsonaro has actually, uh, has actually been keeping his mouth shut the last few weeks about, you know, the possibility of a rigged election, of a, of a rigged election, of, of fraud, mm-hmm. is because he has been penalized time and time and time again by the electoral tri- tribunal, and penalized in a serious way. Just the other, just the other week, uh, the tribunal actually uh, actually ruled that Lula will be able to can now legally have twelve times more, um, I say, airtime, I say, on radio, on television, and on other on other mediums, you know, to to advertise his electoral electoral material. And this was a result of you know, Bolsonaro, uh, you know, uh, pub- publishing various fake news stories about Lula and about his campaign. So. Uh, the electoral tribunal of Brazil, I would say, is would be extremely unlikely to side, you know, to side with Bolsonaro or or favor Bolsonaro in the case of Lula's uh, victory. What's Bolsonaro said are his priorities for, uh, you know, if he does win for his first days and weeks in office? From uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's actually been uh, it has been kind of interesting to. Uh, it's interesting to to watch Bolsonaro during the debates and during the campaign, uh, you know, in the campaign materials. He said, um, "It's not it's not what he's going to do. It's what it, rather rather it's what you know he's going to prevent." Right, right. This is what this has been like his main uh, you know uh, campaign campaign messages. His his whole message is that is that he wants to you know prevent brazil from becoming another venezuela he wants to prevent you know <clears throat> uh, the re- the return of a what do you call a criminal in the, in the office right uh, you know he wants to prevent you know brazil from uh, you know adopting what he calls you know the uh, the gender ideology and the uh, 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 prevent i was I'll say and, and also to preserve you know to preserve, preserve you know the rights to um, uh, to choose, you know, the, you know the religious rights, right? Of course, uh, always and, under and threat. All that. So, really, so, so really, it's not, it's not really a, a plan for him to change anything per, per se, but also would, to prevent, you know, this this imaginary apocalypse from coming onto onto Brazil, which is yeah, in, what, the, in the face of Lula's victory. What would the Lula apocalypse then look like? <laughs> what is Seriously. he saying? <laughs> um, well, um, if that depends on who we talk to. So if we talk, if we talk, tell to, us you know, what's, what's the reality you think of uh, what Lula would be doing. 
we really have to recognize that uh, you know Lula's campaign now and the Lula of today is not the Lula of 2003 when he first uh, won uh, won the election. And in the sense that uh, the Lula of uh, of today, you know, he commands the uh, a, a very a very a very wide, a very broad, uh, you know, electoral block, mm-hmm. which includes which doesn't just include you know left wing and left wing parties like like the Workers Party or the Communist Party or the Green Party, which but which also now includes the support of a, a group a great part of uh, uh, Brazil's uh, liberal and center and centrist. Uh, forces. We, we have to remember that his running mate is Geraldo Alckmin. You know, he's long. It's actually he's one of his other, you know, long-standing uh, political rivals uh, that he uh, they, that he actually defeated, I believe, in the uh, in the 2006 election, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, and this was so. So the forging of this this broad alliance has the overall, you know, aim of preserving Brazilian uh, democracy. So this. In in a way, like the campaign of Lula Silva has has also used the tactic of polar, polariza- polarization, but in contrast to the Bolsonaro, they basically said that you know the, Lula and his allies represent the fight for democracy, while you know Bolsonaro and his allies you know re- represent fascism and the return uh, to the to the dictatorship. It, but I say, in terms of what can we actually expect from Lula's presidency, I believe that. Uh, <sighs> There are, there are three. Uh, I say there are three basic outcomes to be should expect. One is, you know, the Amazon emergency, because mm-hmm. the you know uh, immediately trying to you know uh, trying to put a stop to the you know the massive deforestation uh, campaigns, implementing you know new programs for the preser- preservation of the forests. Uh, new, I say new. I say also new new reforms to you know recognize the. Um, uh, the the original owners of the land. You know their rights. Uh, as well. Secondly, secondly, will of course be uh, the need to deal with the economic and socio- socio-economic emergency of uh, you know of mass poverty in the countries through uh, you know the recreation, probably the re- recreation or the um, let's say the, the remaking of the fo- of the famous Bolsa Familia uh, social social program. Mm-hmm. Which was, I say, a, a series of, you say, stimulus and uh, st- stimulus programs for the most disadvantaged uh, <clears throat> Brazilian families, and thirdly, third, would of course be the uh, dealing with the international emergency, which is, as you know, is the conflict in Ukraine. And here, here, Lula has uh, mentioned many times that that uh, that if 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 he is elected, then he will work together with other leaders in the region. I say with Colombia, with Mexico, to try to uh, you know bring the two conflicting sides to the negotiating table, uh, and basically try to put an end to it and put an end to it. Also, from Lula's statements, it's it's obvious that that he wants Brazil to return to the days of of uh, I say the BRICS collaboration, really restore uh, Brazil's role in, cre- in creating. Uh, the multipolar world, and you know, in seeking seeking the south to south cooperation, in seeking in seeking cooperation uh, with Eurasia, and uh, really, I say, I say re- bringing bringing the balance uh, back. Yeah, which would be exciting to see, right? That would be, you know, I can understand why people are hoping to see this and hoping to see this sort of balance shift in Latin America. Uh, finally, I I wanted to ask, of course, you mentioned the the crisis in the Amazon. How? Uh, how much do you think we truly are at a at a turning point? 
you know, the, the, you've seen English language editorials saying, uh, you know, this is a this this election determines the, the fate of the Amazon and the fate of the planet. Uh, I don't know. How much credence do you give that? Not that the Amazon is not important, but, you know, every election is the most important election in, in our lifetimes, it seems like. And, uh, you know, Brazil's not an exception. Mm. Well, you know, I hate to say this, but I do, uh, but I do kind of agree with the with what you said. You know, the, the British and the American press, in that sense, yeah. <laughs> uh, that uh, that you know this that this that this election was certainly was certainly the, I would say not just determine the fate of the Amazon because we we have, we have to remember that the Amazon has been you know in the state of danger for I would say for a while. And I think it's it's important to acknowledge that. One of the missteps that was made by Lula administration and also by Dilma administration has actually been to ignore the issue of the of the Amazon. As you know, deforestation didn't start during mm -hmm. Bolsonaro's uh, presidency. No. It's it, it was you know it had been going for uh, for a while. And uh, as I said before, one of the main reasons why I say Lula and Dilma kind of progressively s uh, lost the support of the. Of some of the you know the environment the environmentalists what you what you would call you know environmentalist groups parties people like uh, Maria like uh, Mariana da Silva has been allegedly because they ignored you know the mass deforestation campaigns in in Brazil because they gave preference to you know to corporations from say from the United States from China from uh, from, from other countries um, and I believe but. but <laughs> But that is, but, but I think this is a this is an, an error which has been ratified now uh, by Lula's campaign. Uh, but it, and also the crisis of the Amazon has been you know recognized you know, by all sides, in the, uh, by all political sides except for the side which is kind of, which kind of the whole presidency. Mm -hmm. Dennis Rogatuk, always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it'll be likewise very interesting. A lot, a lot hinges on the results over the weekend. Uh, tell our listeners where they Indeed. should go to find uh, El Ciudadano. Uh, El Ciudadano is a primarily Spanish language uh, media, media platform, which is originated in Chile, but is as it now deals with and uh, as it produces material about well, all that is happening in Latin America. It's www.elciudadano.com. Dot com. You can also find me at uh, oh, at uh, uh, Dennis Rogatuk on uh, on Twitter, and I also publish materials in uh, let's say in English, uh, uh, English, Portuguese, uh, French, in on media and websites such as Jacobin, Grayzone, Le Monselev, and Media Ninja. Fantastic! Thanks, Dennis. Great to talk to you. Likewise. I think we're going to skip this break, and I know you have some news of the weird to tell I me. I do. But I have a little update. Um, I think there's a press conference underway oh. about Nancy Pelosi, or there is supposed oh, okay. to be one. And there are early reports about, um, again, uh, still, I think, being attributed <laughs> to um, anonymous police sources that they have a name uh, of the person who attacked her, who might be someone who is connected to just a lot of uh, vile and also nutty stuff online. Um, Figures. Yeah, I have to see. The, the, <laughs> I, now I was, uh, I was looking for it earlier, but I think they have, I feel like they named this person. And 
He might be linked to a website that has things like uh, evidence of human-alien hybrid. There you and, go. Yeah, but also coupled with, of course, a lot of stuff about elite overlords censoring his words and, uh, you know, the Jews want the Ukraine war to go on so they can buy the land and a bunch of other uh, nonsense. The other thing I wanted to say is, you know, I don't know. When I was saying, like, I don't expect Kanye to come forth and put forward a uh, coherent political right. philosophy right. that is sort of racist, racist or fascist. I mean, again, it's also I think it, it raises the question of where where do you define someone? Wh- what's coherent versus what's nuts when you are blaming your entire, you know, all of your economic woes on one race of people? You know what I mean? Like, I do think it's, it's important yes. to also question, like, OK, what are we going to call? What are we going to call hateful but rational and what are we going to call nutty, right? And I sort of felt like I wanted to say, like, right. I do, obviously, I think that any philosophy with that underpinning is nuts. Uh, I think you can just have you can have people do rational, evil things. Yes. But that un- fundamentally, that's a if you believe them, that's a that's a nutty thing to believe. Right. Yes. If that it makes, is a nutty if that thing makes to any believe. more sense. Yeah. So if this guy if this guy who attacked. um uh, Paul Pelosi is indeed the dude behind this website. He's absolutely bonkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, as you said, we've got a little bit of news of the weird. We don't have much time, so we're going to jump in and start in Pensacola, Florida. Yes. David Allen Taylor, age 41 in Pensacola, Florida, did not follow the guidelines for safe tackling recommended by the various youth college and professional football, football organizations. Okay. When he charged onto the practice field at a football game, donned a helmet, got into a football stance, and charged his target, burying his helmet in the target's chest before grabbing him by the arms and pushing him to the ground. Okay. Okay. It wasn't his form that got him in trouble. It was the fact that he had tackled a nine-year-old. Why? Right? He's 41. Yes. The Pensacola News Journal reported that shortly before demonstrating his rusty football skills, Taylor had become enraged upon seeing his son being overpowered by the other nine-year-old. No. Yeah, in a one-on-one tackling drill. Your dad's not allowed to watch football games anymore. Unbelievable. What is wrong with you? The poor kid was not seriously hurt, but Taylor was arrested and booked uh, into the Escambria Escambia County Jail on a first-degree felony count terrible. of aggravated child abuse. That's awful. Isn't I'm that gonna, awful? I'm going to come out. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I oppose uh, grown men tackling <laughs> little boys. Yes, I do. I'm with you. Wow. How about this one? I, I actually, this is kind of a feel-good story, and I actually got oh, a kick great. out of that's this That's what one. I need right now. When your horse runs off with a herd of wild Mustangs in the middle of the night, let him go because he's gone. God, right? a nickel, man. That was the reality that Shane Adams of Fielding, Utah, had to accept when his 10-year-old horse, Mongo, joined a passing herd of wild Mustangs in the middle of the night during a camping trip eight years ago. Wow. Adams reported the horse missing and searched the area regularly for years, he said to no avail. But Yahoo is reporting that the Bureau of Land Management recently contacted Adams with this incredible news. Mongo had been found. What? Yes, after eight years. Eight years. The horses live a long time. I guess. The horse is seriously underweight due to the scarcity of food in the region where he and the herd were roaming. But Adams said Mongo is in good health and has not forgotten his training 
Adam said that his life has taken a downward turn in the years since Mongo ran away. He and his wife dis- uh, divorced, and an auto accident in 2021 left him disabled. He says now, though, that things are looking up. Quote, my life is like down in the dumps, like the car accident. I lost my house. I lost everything, but I got my horse back. Oh, that's, that's I guess, okay. <laughs> I feel good. I'm not sure. That's a feel okay story. Feel okay. Feel okay. Yeah. Um, here's one for you. I saw this on CNN uh, last week. <coughs> Excuse me. And I was wondering if it would make it into News of the Weird. It did. Rory Susan Woods, 55, of Hadley, Massachusetts, is facing multiple assault and battery charges for battery on a police officer. Mm -hmm. You saw this. After she took extreme measures in an attempt to prevent (coughs) what she and other protesters believed was the wrongful eviction being carried out by sheriff's deputies in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, on October 12th. Now, this woman didn't even know the person being evicted, right? She doesn't even live in the neighborhood. She just happened to be driving by. Yep. But in her pickup truck. She just happened to be driving by with with the weapon. With a load of beehives. Wow. Yeah. She drove an SUV hauling a trailer loaded with beehives to the residence of Alton King, the homeowner being served with an eviction notice. She put on a protective beekeeping suit and then she shook the beehives, (gasps) unleashing swarms of angry bees on the police officers, three of whom were allergic to bee stings. <laughs> Sheriff, I know, right? It's terrible. I mean, yes, Sheriff it's bad. Nick Kachi said Ross's actions could have gotten someone killed. He said, we had one staff member go to the hospital, and luckily he was all right, or she would be facing manslaughter charges. I mean, the truth yeah. is that more than a dozen police officers were stung yeah. by these bees. Yeah. And, and when they... This is on video. It's all it it, it plays it was, out it, over a long period. Video one says like I'm allergic to bees, and she goes, "Oh, you're allergic to yeah. bees." Something good. like that. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah, yeah. you're allergic yeah. to bees. Don't you know? I cannot support uh, putting people in in death's way. No, I'll say it. I'm no fan of cops, but unleashing you know it's funny, swarms of bees. But is then not if cool. somebody dies because yeah. they get stung by a baby right. sting, we all know that. We, have, we all watched My Girl. We know that's sad. That's right. Man, uh, we're going to have to get into this next week. This uh, new unredacted report on how the Department of Homeland Security responded to protests in Portland. Like they were requesting police to put together databases on literally everyone who attended these protests. They they wanted yeah, good luck with that. this information so comprehensively and so quickly. Uh, apparently, they Department of Homeland Security officers went to a Best Buy in D.C. and just started distributing laptops. Nice. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Man, I, I you know, wish we had more to say about this uh, attack on Paul Pelosi. I suppose by the weekend it's it will all be sorted out. It's one of those out, but- crazy things. It uh, literally crazy. It does yeah. look like this guy uh, is crazy. But, you know, crazies tend to also latch on to the same kind of stuff. Yeah. So that, that's the, uh, right. the discourse is going to be a lot oh, this yeah. weekend. All right. That's all we got. <laughs> have We're a great weekend. Have a great weekend. Thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks from John and myself. We'll talk to you Monday. <laughs> 